0: Will you sing like redeemed people? Praise God. If you've got a Bible, go to 1 John chapter two. We're gonna look at verses 12 through 17. Hopefully we are ready to go. And if you are at home, uh, join us online. We're glad you're here too. Um, we're glad you can follow along. So, and we hope that we'll get to see you again here in person real soon. All right, so I'm curious if you're flipping, if you got your scriptures open while you're doing that. Uh, how many of you played a sport, let's say at least up through like middle school? In middle school or higher, you played a sport. All right, so for those of you who did, here's my question for you. There are all kinds of coaches. I'm curious which kind worked best for you. So how many of you were the kind that, really the kind of coaching that worked best for you was the kind of uh, gentle, wise, sage, maybe didn't raise their voice, the Tony dungies of the world, right? They're kind of just quiet, like always under control, maybe just quietly, how many of that, that was your kind of coach, man. That, that worked well for you. Okay, all right, yeah, a lot of you. Now, how many of you needed a coach that would get after you a little bit? That would just be like, and maybe raises her voice from time to time. Okay, yeah, very good. Um, so, you know, different things work for different folks, but here's the thing is the reality is probably a good coach needs to be able to do both those things. Needs to, at times, be able to kind of get after a player a little bit. Now, I'm not saying it has to be yelling and screaming, but but to be very direct and say, this is what needs to happen and it needs to happen now and it needs to be done, right? And there's other times where coaches need to pull someone aside and say, let's just, you know, kind of, let's have a chat. Let's talk for a little bit. And so as we come to 1 John chapter two, remember that John's purpose in this whole book is to give confidence to the people he's writing to because there's some other folks trying to lead them astray, trying to make them believe some false things or get them to believe some false things. And he wants them to not go down that road. And he recognizes that giving them confidence that they belong to God, that they are in Christ, they're connected to Him, is key to doing that. And so he's been doing things like reminding them to put their sin to death and to fight against it, and reminding them uh, that they are um, reminding them to love what is right and good. And now he's going to take time here, just kind of smack dab in the middle of the book, to do both those things I just talked about. A good coach does. He's going to encourage them. And he's going to exhort them. He's going to encourage them and he's going to exhort them all for the purpose of keeping them in the truth, helping them walk in what is right, helping them to go forward. And so we're going to see how he does that encouraging work and how he does that exhorting work. And exhorting just means to give instruction by way of command. It's it's firm, right? That's what an exhortation is. And so he's going to do both those things. And they're not contrary to one another. He's able to do both kind of, you know, almost in one breath. He's going to offer them. And so today that's what I want, to, I want to share with you so that we would learn as a body that every Christian really needs both those things at different points in life. Sometimes we need encouragement, yes? Sometimes we need someone to just come along and encourage us. We're going to see how John does that. And then other times we need someone to exhort us. And we both need to be able to do both those things and receive both those things. So we gotta be able to both give those things and receive those things if we're gonna be the church God wants us to be. And so let's see how John does that and let's learn some lessons from that. How do we encourage one another? How do we exhort one another? So if you got your Bible, uh, look with me, starting in verse 12 of 1 John chapter two, and we'll have it on the screens as well. So John begins this way. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I'm writing to you young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children, because you know the father. I write to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now that's the encouragement portion of what he has to share with us. Now let's turn to the exhortation. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, or we can say the pride of possessions, is another translation there, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. All right, so let me pray for us <clears throat> because sometimes there's a, we, we have these whatever, histories, traditions, um, things that might prevent us from receiving encouragement the way that we should and things that prevent us from receiving exhortation. So let's just ask the spirit to break through those things today, okay? I want to ask that for you. Lord, help us now. This is your word. Help me to be tethered to it. and to explain it faithfully, and then uh, assuming you answer that prayer and bring that about, then let your people receive it. Open their hearts and their minds to receive it, and also those who are not your people, those who don't belong to you in Christ yet, open their minds and hearts to receive this great news. We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. All right. So how can we give and receive encouragement? And exhortation, well, let's start with that first section, which is about encouragement. There's a couple things I want you to note before we get into the kind of the meat of the specific way uh, that he is going to encourage them. I want you to note a couple things broadly about his encouragement. So here are those couple things. Number one, that his encouragement's really timely. It's really timely. Did you notice he was addressing people at different stages of life? Now, I think it's likely that he's writing to these churches, and he's not using children and young men and fathers metaphorically in the sense of where they are in their spiritual journey, like you're a young child in your spiritual journey. I think he's addressing them almost by age categories, with the presumption that as we grow older, we grow more spiritually mature. Now, that's not always true if we don't invest in our spiritual life, but he's going to operate from that assumption. He's going to say, here's the encouragement that children need. Here's the encouragement that those who are in their teen and young adult years need. And he's gonna say, here's perhaps the, the encouragement that those who are further along in life need. And so it's timely encouragement. The best encouragement is always timely, right? The best encouragement is always taking into account where we are in life and what we need and usually isn't necessarily super broad, but is very much contextually specific for us. So for instance, one of my favorite things is to be praying and have the Lord just lay someone on my heart that needs a specific word of encouragement. And it's always so encouraging to me, and I think to them, and this is, I've been the recipient of this as well. When you go and you say, man, the Lord just put you on my mind, and there was a specific thought that I had, I wanted to share it with you, maybe it was a verse. It was a, and, and when they respond with, man, you would have no way of knowing this, but this specific thing was going on in my life, and what you're, how you're encouraging me is just the most meaningful thing today. Have you experienced that before? If you've experienced someone coming to you with a very specific and timely encouragement, you know how deeply edifying that is, satisfying it is. And it's satisfying to be the one who delivers it and it's satisfying to be the one who receives it. And so timely encouragement is really an important aspect of encouragement. Now, the second thing I want you to note is that his encouragement is God-centered, not human-centered. John does not spend a lot of time talking about just who they are in their natures, he talks about who they are in God and what God has done. The most meaningful kind of encouragement. I mean, we can encourage one another. It's not wrong to say, man, I love this trait that you possess. I love these things about you. That's good. We do that with our kids and our friends all the time and it's right, but we're coming up a little short of where we really can bring meaningful encouragement if we don't connect those things about a person to God and what he's done in their life. The most meaningful kind of encouragement is always God-centered encouragement. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, Don't, do you see that in God, through Christ, you are these things? He's offering this radically, Jesus-saturated, God-centered kind of encouragement. And as we encourage one another, that is really important that we be people who encourage based on the work of Christ. Not just, not just because... The other kind, even though it can be helpful, it can come across as maybe flattery or somewhat empty or depends on me maintaining that thing about myself. And then when I don't maintain that thing about myself or I don't live out of that character trait, then maybe I'm less valuable. Do you see how you can rise and fall with human-centered encouragement? But God-centered encouragement is centered on what he's done and what he's done never changes. And he never changes. And so to have God-centered encouragement is deeply meaningful. Last two things here before we get into kind of the specifics is he speaks in terms of a realized identity, a realized identity. So he talks to them as children of God, as those who are strong because of Christ and what he's done in their young years, as those who know the one who is from the beginning. And he's saying something about their identity and he's not hedging He doesn't say, well, you're this, but you're not really fully there. What he's doing is he's speaking to a a theological place, a theological concept called positional sanctification. So let me remind us of something. When we talk in terms of theological categories, there's some important things to always keep in mind. Number one is justification, which means that we're declared legally right before God. Like we have been set free, and we're gonna talk about that in just a moment, but we are right with God through the blood of Christ on the cross. That's what justification is. That's a point in time, moment thing. It happens when we trust in him and we are justified. Praise God. Then we enter into this process called sanctification. That just means becoming more like Jesus day by day, right? And so as that's happening, that's a lifelong process. And we know we're not gonna fully uh, achieve sanctification until the day Jesus returns or until he brings us home. But that sanctification is this process we go through throughout life. And then we talk about glorification, which is what will happen when Jesus finally makes all things new, and all those who are his will be glorified and receive a resurrection body that looks like his resurrection body, and we will be full of the weight of glory that we were always meant to have. Pretty incredible, right? So we talk about these categories, but within that sanctification category, which is a process, so glorification will happen at a specific point in time. Justification happens at a specific point in time. Sanctification is a process, but there's a thing that we talk about called positional sanctification. And what it means is this, is that because of Christ, the power of his cross is so sufficient and so strong and so amazing that God sees us as fully sanctified. Our position before him is as if that sanctification process is complete. Right now, he looks at you as one who is sanctified. He's not a fool imagining that process is complete, but because he sees you in and through Christ, he sees you with the sanctification that is yours in him, which is why you are fundamentally not a sinner, but fundamentally you are a saint who still wrestles with sin. It's why Paul can say you are a new creation if you were in Christ. The old has passed away, The new has come, it's a fixed thing, it's done. And that's the encouragement that John is offering here. This is who you are in Christ. Yes, I know you're still in the journey. Yes, I know you're still in the process, but I can speak so assuredly of what Christ has done because it is certain that that end will be yours because Christ keeps all who are his and sanctifies them to the end. It's so certain and so assured that I'm going to speak to you from your position as a sanctified one, not just as one who's in the process of sanctification. Does that make sense? All right, I see some nodding heads. To get that is to to understand that when we encourage one another, we don't have to hedge our encouragement you know, you're, you're pretty good, but you're not all there. You know, you're gonna get there. You don't have to hedge when you speak to a child of God as if they are a child of God and the work of God has been done in their life. You can just speak it. And you can encourage in that way with that certainty. And then the last thing that I want you to see is very simple. He repeats himself because it's really good to encourage more than once. Right? There's a reason he repeats himself in this encouragement. In the exhortation, he doesn't really repeat himself as much. He just makes a linear argument in the exhortation. But in the encouragement, did you notice, he addresses children and fathers and young men, young women, right? People in this, you know, kind of middle stage. And then he goes back and he does it again. And with children, he gives them something specific that they need. And young adults, he gives them something specific that they need. And same with fathers. Well, why repeat himself? Children get two different encouragements, even though they get addressed twice. The young ones, the middle kind of, of the equation, they get the same encouragement repeated twice, and so, does, so do the fathers, So do those who are further on, you know, towards the end of the journey, the moms, the dads. He says, he just repeats himself twice. Don't miss that. Sometimes, my guess is, as you listen to this, some of you are going to be you recognize I'm more prone to be the encourager or you might think I'm more prone to be the exhorter. You might naturally fall into one of those categories, but you need to be able to do both, okay? Say I need to do both. Okay, don't make me a liar. No, don't be a liar. Actually, you said it, even though I forced you. You need to be able to do both and you might lean one direction or the other, but here's the thing about encouragement is that he, man, has someone ever encouraged you and then encourage you again, let's say a day later, a week later. Did you was your response to that encouragement like, I mean, that's meaningless. You already said that. Or did you go, man, that, that helps to hear that again? Can you ever hear encouragement enough? I'm not sure you can. So he encourages twice. All right, now can we get into some of the, the specifics? Yes? All right, cool. You know me, I like you to talk to me. All right, here we go. Let's talk about children, let's talk about young men, young women, and then let's talk about fathers, mothers, those who are further down the journey. And again, we're, we're just kind of thinking about this journey through life. So here's what he says to the children he says, Two things you are forgiven and you know the Father. That's what he says to them. These are really fundamental aspects to our faith. In fact, you don't actually relate to God until you relate to him as someone who has been forgiven by a loving father. There's no other way to actually come to him. Do you see that? You're either separated from him and not in relationship with him, or you come to him as one who receives forgiveness in Christ and has him as your father. You can't come to him as something else. I'm gonna come to him, I'm gonna try and approach him in some third way or some second way. There isn't another way. You either come to him as forgiven and father, or you don't come to him. So here's the beauty of this, for those who are in our young years, we need to be reminded that we are forgiven because we are so prone to keep rehearsing our sin and keep going back to it as if it still claims us or owns us, as if we're still guilty. But in Christ, do you understand how powerful a statement is to say you are forgiven? The worst thing you've ever done, if you have come to Christ, that guilt has been taken from you, it is not on you anymore. You are no longer condemned by it and you're not guilty of it because the penalty for it has fallen on Christ and you have taken him at his word. You are forgiven and therefore you are free. You don't have to walk around with the weight of that on yourself anymore. It's gone, it's done. All of us have things that we hate that we've done. All of us have things that make us feel ashamed that we have done them. You are out from underneath that when you are forgiven by Christ. Do you see that? And by the way, just because this is the most timely thing for a child to be reminded of, doesn't mean those of us who are further down the road don't need to hear it again too. How many of you, when you were young, if you grew up in church, <clears throat> how many of you prayed to receive Jesus like four, five, seven, 20 times? Yeah, why? Why? Because we don't really believe that we can be rid of the guilt. Because we don't actually think forgiveness is what it is. Because we think there's still some of that clinging to us and friends, this is the truth of scripture. This isn't my idea. The truth of scripture is that all who are in Christ have had their sins removed as far as the east is from the west. There is now no more guilt on you. And you can't relate to God rightly until you receive that, until you believe that. And you need to believe it about each other too. The second thing he says, children, you have a father. So just in case, someone might hear that and go, well, okay, so God made this like mechanical way for people to not be guilty anymore. Because he, you know, for whatever reason, he decided he wanted to have people in heaven or whatever, and so... You know, he's going to, he's just going to, he went through these steps and he sent his son. And so now there's this mechanical kind of forgiveness that's offered to me. Lest you think that, he says, not only children are you forgiven, you know the father. He's conjuring up, regardless of what you think a father is, whatever image you have in your head of fatherhood, let the scriptures define it. Don't let your experience define it. He says, this is what a father is. He's full of love and patience and steadfastness. And yes, he instructs and guides and disciplines, but he is so glad to call you his. Say, that's my son. That's my daughter. He's overjoyed to claim you as his own. One of the richest experiences any of us have in life is when we have a parent who says, that's my boy, that's my girl are mine. I heard someone tell a story this week and it was really powerful about that kind of fathering relationship about a set of parents who had two kids, one who was just an A student and excelled and thrived and they were in a play and and they went to the play and and they were the star of the play. I mean, their daughter, she was just like, every line was so eloquently delivered and it was just so wonderful. And, And I mean, standing ovation at the end for their daughter. They also had a son who struggled with some intellectual capacity and capability. And they, for months, he was in a play as well, a different play. And for months, they went over in the car. He had four lines, and it was really challenging for, for him to remember those four lines. I mean, just really hard for him. And they went over it and over it and over it. Everyone in the family knew them, perhaps except him by the end. It's kind of how it felt like, oh, he's still struggling with those lines, and we all know them because we'd just been teaming up to try and get them. They went to that, that play, and he delivered his four lines are kind of in the middle. They were, they were almost inconsequential to the nature of the play. The play probably could have been done without those four lines and it wouldn't have hurt anything and the story still would have gone forward. No one even notices, no one applauds, no one says anything. But as a father and a mother, they wanted to jump out of their chair when he said his four lines. And say, that's my boy. That's him, I, he's mine. Some of us may feel like the star pupil You know, the one that that has all the lines. and It's fine. I think most of us probably feel like the one who struggles with the four lines. And just listen to the heart of those parents because that's God's heart towards you. And honestly, had he flubbed the four lines, they would still, as a mom and dad, say, that's my boy. I love my son. He's mine. And that God is delighted to claim you as his. So, when we're young in the faith, how good is it for to, to encourage our young ones that you are forgiven and that you have a father. You're forgiven and you know the father. And he delights in you. So those are really timely encouragements for those of us who are early in our days. Now let's turn to kind of the middle of the story, that kind of those young adult years. He says to them, young men, and we can say young men and young women. He's addressing the men in the church, but it's, it applies to everybody in this stage. What he's saying is you have overcome the evil one, and he says God's word abides in you, and therefore his strength abides in you, so you have overcome the evil one. He repeats it twice, and what he has in mind is the power of the cross operating in these young men and young women that have enabled them to overcome the lies of the devil and the temptations of the devil. And he's saying you are strong because of Christ. His cross has enabled you to overcome. Now, why is this timely encouragement? Because, friends, we need to, especially if you're in these young adults, if you're like high school, I'd say middle school, high school, kind of out of the child stage, but, but maybe not yet into kind of a more, you know, a little later in life. So I, I don't know what age group necessarily to say, other than like, you know, kind young adults. Here's what I'd say to you. You are, you need to embrace this. You are more, more susceptible to temptation during these days because God has filled you with passion, but you haven't yet had the years to apply the work of the cross into a place of maturity. It takes time. So it's no fault of yours, and it doesn't mean there isn't great power moving through you and in you and wisdom being given to you and God moving through you mightily, but you need to understand that you're susceptible to temptation in a way now that as you grow to maturity, It's not like temptation ever goes away, but you've won enough battles and fought enough fights and won enough that you know how to do it. You keep walking it. You keep appropriating the work of the cross long enough. Certain battles that are really fierce early in life become pretty commonplace later in life. You go, yeah, you're not getting me with that one. As you move along in the journey, praise God, because otherwise, if every temptation was as Fraught and as difficult and as painful as it were in our younger years when we are like 75, that would be brutal. But as we grow to maturity, we learn to win battles. We learn how to appropriate the cross. We learn how to apply it and walk in it. That's what maturity in Christ is, yes? And so, friends, in, these kind of middle, in this middle stage, temptation is significantly powerful. But older ones of us, lest we forget, What is the encouragement here? They are strong. Don't dismiss the strength of our young adults, of those who are in these days, because God, I mean, most of the movements of God, of revival that have happened, do you know this, have happened through people in this stage of life. Because there is a passion and a zeal, and God uses it, praise him for that. Don't dismiss it, embrace it, love it. Raise it up. If you're not raising up a younger generation to be used of God and imparting wisdom to them and fanning the flame of their gifts, you are missing something. So here's what I would say. Um, Recognizing that you're more susceptible during these years, he says you have overcome. So let's just say, he's not saying you've overcome in your own strength. He's saying you've overcome. When he's talking about the overcoming, what he's saying is the cross is the devil's death nail. The the devil at no point wins over the cross. There's not a day where the devil wakes up and says the power of the cross is not sufficient to beat me and my lies and my temptations again today. That day never comes. The cross has sentenced him forever. Now he still has some influence. He still has some opportunity in these days, but he is essentially dead as a doornail. That is his future. He knows it. And he's gonna go in his death throes with as much violence as he possibly can to take down the church of Christ and make them ineffective. But he is not the one who overcomes. We have overcome through the cross. What that means is we appropriate the work of the cross through faith by reminding ourselves of what is true of us covered in that blood and its power to overcome temptation. So I do not have to yield to temptation And we have the power of the ethic of the cross to appropriate and say, what does humility look like? What does truth look like? What does godliness look like? What does self-sacrifice look like? These are all the ethics of the cross, yes? And so we take up that instructional nature of the cross, and we take up that internal power of the cross by faith, reminding ourselves that this is me. I have overcome through the sufficiency of the cross, and as I appropriate those things. I take them up and make them mine. And I say, this is is me. I overcome sin. I overcome temptation. Faith overcomes. Faith overcomes. Not discipline, not grit. Faith. So we go back again and again and again to the appropriation of the work of the cross into our life bit by bit by bit. So encourage one another, especially our young men, young women, with how strong they are in Christ. Now let's turn to fathers and mothers, the last group that kind of gets addressed, those who are now further on in the journey of life. And he says to them, did you know, what does he say? You know the one who is from the beginning. I think what he's saying here is you know the one who is timeless, who's eternal, who made everything that he made. He's the one who possesses all knowledge and wisdom, and that's specifically timeful for you or timely for you who are older because as you journey on in life, what happens? You get more responsibility. You have more influence. Things get a little weightier. Do you remember when, some, some of us who are a little older remember when we weren't in charge of anything and that felt pretty freeing. And now we're in charge of maybe a lot and that feels weighty because our children depend upon us. If we have children, maybe we lead a business or we are spiritual fathers and mothers to others. And there's a weightiness to being at that stage of life. And what he's saying by way of encouragement is, you know the one who has all the wisdom that you need. So let me ask a question. Let's just do a 101, because it's good to remind ourselves of this. Is there any wisdom that God does not possess? Okay, good. Fantastic. I got worried there for a second. Now, James chapter one, verse five says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives, does anybody know the next word, generously, lavishly, generously to all, and it will be given. So we already already established there is no wisdom God does not possess. There's no shred of knowledge he doesn't have, and there's no way of applying that knowledge in a wise way that he does not know how to do. And then he says to us, by the way, if you ask me, I will give it to you. Did he say, maybe I'll give it to you? No, he said, I will give it to you. Now, we have an instruction after that that says, but ask in faith, not in a double-minded way, doubting as to whether or not he'll give it to you or not. Go to him in faith that he will give it to you because he's promised. He delights to give you. So he doesn't lack any. So there's no chance that we're going to go to him and he's not going to have what we need. And he is willing to give lavishly generously. So whatever situation you face, those of us who are a little further on in the journey, is there any wisdom that he will not grant us that we need? If you need it, it will be yours. Take him at face value. Can we do that? Take him at face value. Now, let me say one more thing by way of learning to encourage each other. Because in the same way I said those of us who are older, let's make sure we encourage our young men and young women that they are strong. They have overcome the devil. They are not, they don't have to succumb to temptation. And let's platform them to use their gifts and their skills. Those of you who are a little bit younger, young adults, children, you may not realize this because you're you're probably used to kind of receiving guidance or instruction from those of us who are older, but it is really meaningful when someone who is younger says to those of us who are older, I love seeing your wisdom. You, You are wise. And I love that wisdom. You might think that you don't have that kind of voice, but let me just ask, those of you who are older, would that be meaningful to you if a younger person said, man, I see wisdom in you and I love it? Yeah, it would be. So let's encourage one another, yes? Now let's ask, let me just, before we go to exhortation, let me remind us why this is so important. Because again, what John is trying to do is not let them be led astray. And the reason encouragement is necessary. I mean, he almost, it's like a record scratch, this little section here, because he's he's been so busy talking about hate, sin, and love, righteousness, and even talking about his own position, like, here's why you should believe me and not them. It just feels almost odd that he just pauses and goes, I'm just gonna give you 12, 13, 14. I'm just gonna give you these verses now, these three verses in the middle of this whole thing, just to encourage you, just to tell you what's true of you. The reason he's doing it is because it's so necessary to keep them from going astray, to keep them from believing false things. If you are not constantly sort of receiving the encouragement you need, you can get so bogged down under the weight of what feels like commands and instructions and other things that you can get disheartened and disheartened people go astray. Disheartened people look for their satisfaction somewhere other than the truth. And so he takes time to encourage. Never miss the power of encouragement. Yes? Never miss the power of encouragement. Sometimes we run to exhortation and what we really needed to do was encourage. It helps guard us from false things and from going down the wrong path. Now the, the exhortation, let's turn to that. And let me just do the same thing I just did there. Why is exhortation necessarily? Uh, and then we'll make some observations about how he exhorts and some of the specifics. But as you think about exhortation, maybe think about it this way. Why is exhortation also necessary to keep them from going astray? Uh, when I was, oh man, in my 20s probably, I led a group of students, high school students, to, uh, on a mission trip to Africa. And we had this unusual circumstance. We had something kind of go wrong and uh, there were only flights. So we flew into to Kenya and they were going to fly from Kenya to Sudan. And there were only flights for half our team. Or, a, you know, there were a few flights that weren't there. And so when you're leading really high school kids, that makes you nervous. They uh-oh, we gotta get from one country to another country and I don't have all the airplane tickets. So I sent one leader ahead with most of our team and I stayed back with a couple other members of our team. We had to wait 24 hours for another flight. And while we were waiting, we were, uh, at some point, We were the next day we were walking down the streets of Nairobi and as we were walking, something happened to me that was completely unexpected. Now, at that point, I had more hair than I have now. Like, I had some... I had some like sandy blonde hair, which is unusual for Nairobi, Kenya. It's a different kind of hair than is typically on the streets of Nairobi, Kenya. And out of nowhere, I feel one high school kid here, one high school kid here, I'm walking. They both happened to kind of turn. Their eyes got like saucer size. And I felt something just hit me on the top of the head. And then in front of me, what felt like a 12 foot wingspan of a bird just flew and I almost lost it because this thing had tried to grab my hair. It must've looked like something to build a nest with. I don't know. And just taken off in the other direction. And I thought, I didn't get a great look, but everything in me wanted to be like, I mean, he could have just taken my head off. Like I'm envisioning just being pulled by my hair off the ground. I'm sure the wingspan wasn't 12 feet. It was probably like two feet, but it looked like 12 to me. And both the boys were like, did you see it? Did you see that? What was it? I don't know. You know, and we went back and forth. One of the things that happens is when something that you're not expecting hits you and surprises you, you're not scared in advance, but afterwards you have like fear on the other side of it. Have you experienced that? So you're just like, oh my goodness, you're shaking. I'm like struggling to walk after that because I'm thinking like, "What? what just happened? I had no concept of that. This is why exhortation is so important because falsehood sneaks up on us. And in particular, the falsehoods that he's gonna talk about here, putting all the meaning of your life in material possessions and being greedy. These are things that sneak up on us. We don't see them in advance, and when why exhortation is so important is because it's the equivalent of saying, "There's a bird behind you, look out." Duck. Maybe wear a hat when you go outside. Right? That's essentially what exhortation does: is it warns and commands in a firm way. So let's look at a couple of. Uh, True things about this instruction, right? So number one, notice that he doesn't have any trouble moving from one to the next. He's not like, I I can only encourage, I can't exhort. He brings both, which we've already talked about, so I won't belabor that. But here's a couple other things to note. There is a loving firmness in his exhortation. A loving firmness. I don't get the sense that he's yelling or anything like that, right? But what he is doing is he's not being wishy-washy. He's not saying, you know, if you feel like it, you should probably do this. Or maybe you ought to consider doing that. He is instructing them from God's truth and he's not afraid to speak definitively. He's saying, this is true. Do not love the world. Period, end of sentence, right? I mean, he just says says it. So exhortation given succinctly and directly is really helpful. Then the same thing that's true of the encouragement is true of the exhortation. It is God-centered, not human-centered. So he's not spending his time exhorting them with his own opinions or his own thoughts. To To be honest, if you're just giving people your ideas, you have no business exhorting them. The only business any of us have bringing in exhortation is when we are applying something true according to God's word. That's the only appropriate kind of exhortation. Now, you can give opinions and advice. Usually wait till they're solicited, please. All right, Feel free to do that when it's asked for, but please don't make that sound as if it is definitively the truth that someone must obey. The only truths that any of us must obey are the truths given in scripture to us that we must then apply. So even if you're giving an application of truth, please couch that as, here's what I would think would be a wise application of this truth. But when you exhort, exhort according to the word of God, not according to your opinions. Fair enough? And that exhortation has weight. It has power. Because people, even if they don't like what you have to say, if it's a, again, this is between fellow believers, right? There's no reason an unbeliever would obey anything written in the scriptures. But for a believer who should obey the scriptures, it will carry weight. It will carry power. So. Let's then get to the specifics of the exhortation here. He says, do not love the world. Now, let me explain what he means by world because you know, in John, the world is essentially humankind in rebellion against God. That's what he means when he says the world. Humankind as a whole in rebellion against God. Now, here's what he says. In other places, John, like in John chapter 1, verse 5, in John's gospel, he says, the world lies in darkness and sin. In John chapter 9, verse 39, he says the world is under divine judgment. So do you see what he's saying? The world, when he talks about the world, he's talking about this, this sphere of humanity that's in rebellion against God, and it's rightful, the rightful result of that. But he also says in John 3:16 that God loves the world and sent his son to redeem it. So God's done something into that rebellious sphere of activity. So what John doesn't mean when he says, do not love the world, he doesn't mean don't love people, because clearly Jesus loved people and told us to love our neighbor, okay? So he doesn't mean don't love people. And when he says, and don't love the things in the world, he doesn't mean don't enjoy good food or good drink. He doesn't mean don't enjoy the good gifts that God has given. What he means is this. The best way I can sum it up for you is to say this. He's saying, don't embrace the values of a rebellious world that hates God, Don't live according to the same values that those who do not love and want to follow God live by. So please don't hear some kind of false aesthetic notion that says, I can never enjoy a good meal because I'm not supposed to love the things in the world. Not true. God has given us all those good gifts to enjoy and to use as forms of worship. We are not meant to be, you know, aesthetics in the sense of, if you're not familiar with that word, it just means people who are kind of like, bare minimalist. We can't ever enjoy anything, right? But what he's saying is this rebellion against God that defines the very nature of the world. Don't embrace its way of operating. Don't embrace its values. Don't live according to that and love those things. Because what does he say? If the love of those, if that is in you, the love of the father is not And he intentionally used his father to, again, bring that warmth of affection. He doesn't say the love of God is not in you. He says the love of the father is not in you because he wants to help you see that your father loves you, and your right response is to love him. You should love the father as he loves you, and you're not loving him if you are embracing the values of the world if you're living according to those values, things like self-reliance and greed and materialism. and that's He's gonna get into the specifics, and what's interesting is you might expect, especially when he talks about desire, that he would be talking about things that are physical, uh, you know, related to intimacy and those kinds of things, and you might think that's what he's gonna talk about. That's kinda where your brain naturally goes. You think about desires and desires of the flesh. That's not actually where he goes. He goes to greed, covetousness, and materialism. That's where he goes. So look at the next phrase then. When he uses these phrases down in verse 16, he's defining for us what love of the world looks like. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh. Now that first phrase there is a broad category and the next two are gonna fill up that category. They're gonna fill it in and tell us what it means. So the desires of the flesh, living in a way that I, I lust for material or for things in the world, right? Then he says, desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, what he's talking about there is coveting something you don't have. You look at it, you want it, you don't have it, so you covet that thing. And closely related is greed. And then he says, and the pride of life. Now most commentators there say a good translation is pride of possessions. In other words, the opposite side of the coin. Putting your value and your worth in the things that you own, in material possessions. Those are one is what you might struggle with if you don't have, coveting, wanting what you don't have. Pride of possessions is what you would probably struggle with if you do have, right? And he's not saying it's wrong to have, it's, not, it's wrong not to have. He's not saying it's wrong either way. What he's saying is when you place your desire on those things as the sum total of what gives life meaning and purpose. I've been reading Calvin and Hobbes to my kids. Anybody read Calvin and Hobbes? Love some good Calvin and Hobbes. My mom, like, found my treasure trove of old Calvin and Hobbes book and probably because she wants to get them out of her house, sent them to me. And so I've been reading them with the kids and the other night I was reading Deacon and and I came across one that I thought was awesome. Uh, If you Calvin loves chewing gum and so he's collecting Captain Napalm chewing gum cards. And he goes to Susie, who's like his frenemy, you know? He's always throwing snowballs at Susie and doing hard things to her and yada yada. You know, she's a yucky girl to him. And so... He says, Susie, do you wanna get together after school and trade Captain Napalm chewing gum cards? And she says, I don't collect Captain Napalm chewing gum cards. And then the final box of the comic is Calvin. She's walked away and Calvin goes, it must be tough to have no purpose in life. It made me laugh. I don't think Deacon understood why I was laughing. But what Watterson, uh, Bill Watterson writes that comic what Watterson is doing, the reason that's funny, the reason we all just laughed is because we recognize how ridiculous it is to put our value in Captain Napalm chewing gum cards, that that's our purpose. But is it any less ridiculous to put your value in getting a boat or a lake house or a bigger bank account? Those are just the Captain Napalm chewing gum cards for 60-year-olds instead of six-year-olds. And again, nothing wrong with having those things. But making that your purpose, what gives you value, it's no sillier than Calvin, or no less silly, I should say, than Calvin. And that's, what, that's the exhortation that John, you don't love the world. You wanna know if you're loving the world? Look at how you're handling your material possessions. Do you covet what other people have? Are you full of greed, wanting to hang on to every little shred of what you have? Do you love material possessions so much that getting them is what gives you a sense of value? Now, again, these aren't the only things that would mark the love of the world, but it's very telling that that's where John chooses to go, isn't it? Because I will say, I think this, I think greed and materialism hide themselves from us far better than just about every other love of the world category. When we lust in in a way related to sexuality, we know it. It doesn't really hide itself from us. It's like right there in front of us. When we lash out in anger, we can't hide that. We see it, we know it. We're like, yeah, I'm spilling over in anger. But when we're greedy, we can tell ourselves somebody else is greedier than us. When we want things because we think that's what is gonna give us a sense of satisfaction in life, we just look to what others have more than that. I just want this. I only want the 20-foot boat. I don't want the 40-foot yacht. It's just so easy to hide itself. I think that's why John is going there because he's saying these things are deadly. And he's exhorting us, don't love the world or the things in the world. Now listen, there's only one remedy for this. And, and perhaps I, I always feel like, and it's probably, I'm probably wrong to feel this way, but I feel like whenever I keep giving you the same remedy over and over and over again to this, that you're just like, give us something else. You probably aren't thinking that, but I think you think that. Because there's only one remedy, and it's generosity. If you want to get rid of the pride of possessions where you put your value in the things that you own, then you have to be sacrificial in your giving and joyful in your giving and intentional in your giving. You need a plan for being generous with your material things, to give them to kingdom causes and to put your money to use for things that are eternal. That's how he ends in verse 17. Did you notice that? The things of the world are passing away. But those things that are in God, they remain forever. They abide forever. Invest your material wealth for eternal things. It is not a fool's errand to do so, but it is a fool's errand to spend it on things that are not eternal in value. Leverage it. Give to your church. Give to kingdom causes. Support those who are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Spend your money for things that matter. Generosity, that's your weapon. That is your weapon. So friends, go back to the broad categories again and then we'll uh, sing and, and depart. We have to be able to have the relationships within our body. If we're gonna be the church God wants us to be, we're gonna have to be able to encourage one another deeply and meaningfully and timely. And we're gonna have to exhort one another. We have to be able to speak those truths to one another to help each other know when danger's coming from behind and we don't see it. Encourage and exhort for the glory of God and Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it goes places that we might not want it to go because it's hard to hear, we see ourselves reflected in it, but thank you also for the gracious encouragement that you offered us today, that we are your children, we are forgiven, we have the Father, we know the one who's from the beginning, that we are strong and have overcome the evil one through the cross. Man, we needed to be reminded that. Thank you, you're so gentle with us and kind. Thank you for offering that. Thank you for the exhortation not to love the world. Would you send your spirit's power moving through us so that we might walk away from the love of the world and be marked by the love of the Father. We pray it in the name of Jesus, amen.